It's great to add my welcome to you, uh, you who are in the room and you who are joining us online as we uh, continue the series we launched last week called Follow. Uh, I'm excited to be on this nine-week adventure with you. You know, we always pray for spiritual growth. There's not a week or a season in the life of our church where we're not trying to grow spiritually. But I think there's something powerful about this journey that we're on right now. Uh, that, that we have a chance to kind of follow Jesus into the practices that he models for us. And maybe even just a few weeks in, are you starting to feel your, your roots grow a little bit deeper? I'm, I'm hoping and praying that you are. Uh, you know, between now and, and Holy Week, we want to look at some of these particular practices. But our bigger dream is that we become like that tree uh, in Psalm 1. You know the tree I'm talking about in Psalm 1 verse 3? It's that tree that's kind of transplanted by streams of water, deep roots, and because of its deep rootedness, it yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, whether it's in a drought or not, and, and whatever they do, they prosper. That's our dream. And today we want to follow Jesus into the practice of Scripture, the discipline of Scripture. And by that I mean reading Scripture, hearing Scripture, studying Scripture, memorizing Scripture, obeying uh, Scripture ultimately. And one of the things that we see in the life of Jesus is that his whole life was saturated in Scripture. We see him as a 12-year-old and he is uh, conversing with rabbis because he knows the Scripture so well. And so to me, it's not surprising at all that when we find Jesus in one of the greatest tests of his life, when he's being uh, opposed by the devil in the wilderness, that one of the things that he does is he draws upon again and again the discipline, the truth, the fruit of a life that's immersed in Scripture. And so I want you to listen for the skillful use of Scripture that Jesus employs as we read um, in Luke chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. God bless the reading of his word. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like for grown-up me to time travel back and talk to childhood me and to tell childhood me about all the things he would one day experience. I wonder if little Larry could even imagine all of the technological marvels that the 21st century would hold for him. 
I imagine me kind of going back to the late 1960s and young Larry's playing with an Etch-a-Sketch or a Spider-Graph or something like that. And I tell young Larry that one day he will put on a virtual reality headset with special gloves and he will be in an entirely different world inside this headset. And that with this headset that he can play tennis or, or he can captain a virtual ship or he can drive a virtual a Formula One car around a track in Abu Dhabi. I mean, would he have believed it? You know, sometimes you can almost pinch yourself to think of the unique technological experiences that our modern age brings to us. But still, we know this, right? With new technology comes new risks. I read about a, an insurance company uh, in the United Kingdom that has noted a huge increase in their insurance claims related to people wearing virtual reality headsets. When people get caught up in what is happening inside their headsets, they end up smashing light fixtures and punching ceiling fans. Uh, one customer accidentally broke his television when he ended up throwing his controller at a zombie that he saw uh, in the headset. Uh, a, a director of property claims says, you know, these devices can be a great source of fun, but we'd encourage people to be, and then here's the key phrase, mindful of their surroundings. But of course, the risks are, are greater than even property claims. The Wall Street Journal reported last month on the rise of metaverse-related injuries, including dislocated shoulders, fractured kneecaps, and injured girlfriends. <laughs> In fact, even at a recent team-building day for our staff, we experienced a, a challenge. I, I think I'll just show you the video. John Hewlett, right at the end, dislocated his pinky, uh, reaching out to swat a, a bunny, right? Is that what it was? <laughs> Thank you, John, for permission to show that video. Thank you to Priscilla, even though I didn't ask you. Um, well, well, believe it or not, I, I think that this idea of the VR headset is a helpful image to understand the risks that Satan exposed Jesus to and that Satan exposes us to. You see, when our passage opens uh, in chapter 4, Jesus has just experienced heaven's approval uh, at his baptism in the Jordan River. He's at a spiritual high point, but isn't it interesting how often that some of our most fierce temptations follow a spiritual high point. It's the, it's the day after we get back from the mission trip or the, or, or the Christian camp so often when we experience such intense temptation. And, and that's what happens to Jesus as the passage opens in the first couple of verses. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, the Jordan River, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted 
by the devil. You can almost take the information in these two verses and, and line them up on both sides of a, of a balance sheet. On the positive side of the ledger, Jesus is full of the Spirit and he's led by the Spirit. Also, we know from verse 2 that he was fasting uh, and, and not a brief fast, not like, you know, skipping lunch before you get blood drawn or something like that, but, but a fast for 40 days. And so his soul was in a place of communing with God. But then on the other side of the balance sheet, we know that because he was so hungry, he was vulnerable to temptation. And we also know that Satan was on the prowl. And so what I want to suggest to you is that Satan uh, uh, excels in presenting us with a kind of virtual reality. And a lot of our mistakes, a lot of our sins come in responding to the false picture that Satan is presenting us and not the true picture that God wants us to see. And so often when we respond to that, that false vision that Satan gives us, that's when we break things and that's when we injure others and that's when we hurt ourselves and that's certainly when we disobey God. But one of the reasons why we follow Jesus into this practice of Scripture, reflecting on Scripture and obeying Scripture, is because Scripture moves us from false reality to true reality. You might say that Scripture helps us take Satan's uh, headset off, so to speak, and so that we can see the world around us as it truly is. You know, the Bible tells us that, that Jesus was tempted just like we're tempted. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says that Jesus Christ was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. And I believe that for Jesus, one of the things that, that helped him stay faithful was the truths of Scripture kept him grounded. So how does this work? Well, when Satan tries to distort Jesus' vision, not once or twice, but three times, how does Scripture help Jesus keep his vision clear? How does Scripture help us uh, not give in to a false reality and run into walls and hurt others and hurt ourselves? Well, uh, several things I want to focus on. And the first is this. Scripture tells us who we are. You see, so often when we're tempted, we forget our identity. In, in, in two of the three temptations, the, the devil deliberately tries to distort the true identity of Jesus. And he does it in a subtle way. Right? Take the first temptation. Jesus, as we said, is, is physically weak and hungry. He finds himself in a, in a wilderness region. And notice how the devil plays on Jesus' identity here in verse 3. The devil said to him, look at this phrase, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Very subtle, isn't it? Hey, you're God's son, right? Of course he is. You're God's son. Well, I've got an idea. You know, if, if, if you want people to follow you, a surefire way to do that is to open up a bakery and give out free bread. So, so why not practice this skill right now? You need a little bit of practice before you do it. Why not practice this skill right now? Why not tell some of these desert stones to become bread? Now, I want you to imagine you haven't eaten for 40 days. And you're in the desert and you're looking out and you're seeing these flat stones. And you know the desert heat can play tricks on your eyes. Uh, uh, and maybe as you look at these flat stones, your vision begins to shift and suddenly you see uh, a toasty 
pan of sourdough where that stone is. Or maybe you see a, a hunk of French bread with little diagonal slices with butter melting in the crevices. Or, or maybe you see a cinnamon scone. Or, or maybe you see a, a blueberry scone. Or maybe you see a thick, fresh flour tortilla just right off the comal, right? And, 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 and suddenly your vision is distorted. Jesus has to ask himself in that moment, who am I? Is that who I am? Is that what it means to be the son of God? To entertain myself by playing tricks with my divine powers? Is that what it means to be God's son? To use my, my abilities in a self-serving way? You know, the devil must really like this trick because he comes back to it again in verse 9. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and then notice the, the phrasing again. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. If you are the son of God. In fact, this time script, uh, the devil even tries to use scripture to support his case. He misapplies Psalm 91 about angels cushioning the fall of Jesus. And once again, Jesus is forced to ask himself, is this who I am? Is this what it means to be the son of God? You see, friends, the devil will look for any crack in your understanding of what it means to be a child of God. But three times, Jesus is confronted at the point of weakness, and three times he responds with scripture. In fact, twice he uses a, it's a single word in the Greek. It's graphtai. It's where our English word graph comes from. A graph means to write. Three times he says gagraptai, which means it is written or it stands written or, or, or essentially God has said it. Satan, you come to me with your words, but I want to come back to you with God's words. Your words present a false reality. God's words present a true reality. And so, for example, when Satan tempts Jesus with bread, what does he say? He says, Jesus answered, it is written, gagraptai, it is written, it stands written. God has said, man shall not live on bread alone. And in Matthew's recounting of this, the, the quotation is finished, but, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, Scripture teaches us our true hunger is always for God. Right? And Jesus has to, to figure out who he is. And Jesus realizes in that moment that he is not Esau from the Old Testament. He's not going to sell off his identity. He's not going to sell off his birthright for a bowl of stew. That's not who he is. You know, one of the saddest things for me is when I hear people recount a moment in their life when they forgot who they were, when they forgot who they were called to be. Maybe they were at work and, and they were working on a project with an attractive coworker. Meanwhile, things at home were, were stressful and not very passionate. And suddenly that person forgot who they were. And in the moment, you know, they thought what they really needed was a closer uh, companionship with this coworker, and after all, this project is important, and we need to spend time together. And one conversation leads to an ill-timed late-night text, which leads to a really inappropriate conversation, which leads to a really terrible decision. And sometimes in the aftermath, they say, "I don't know how 
I don't know how I could have let myself be so distorted. I don't know how I could let myself do that. That's not who I am. Scripture reminds us of who we are. I pray that we allow the Holy Spirit to use God's word to remind us of our true identity. One of the things we're emphasizing in this series is one of the ways we do that is through scripture memory, it's through meditation. Jesus obviously had these scriptures stored in the pantry of his heart. And when he got hungry, it was a full pantry. And he could go in and he could find just the right truth for the right moment. He could feast on God's word and be, and be reminded of who he is. Friends, we need to do that right now, today, to say back to the evil one, Gagraftai, it is written, let me tell you what God's word says about who I am and about the situation that we are in. So, scripture reminds us of who we are. There's a second way that scripture helps us kind of take off Satan's goggles and see reality, and that is scripture tells us how God works. Scripture tells us the ways and means of God, which are different from ours. Isaiah says that. Your thoughts, higher than my thoughts. Your ways, higher than my ways. My uh, instincts are often sinful reactions, but not you, God. And I think this plays out in, 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 in all of these temptations because, yes, Jesus was hungry, yes, but, but there's so much more going on. You see, I think each of the three temptations represent subtle shortcuts, to God's plan. That's our human tendency, isn't it, to always want to take a, a shortcut? I mean, a university lays out a nice set of sidewalks, they're kind of perpendicular, <laughs> but what do we do, right? I could save three steps if I cut through the, that beautiful grass, right? We're always looking to save steps. I agree with those scholars who say that in each of these three temptations, the devil was offering Jesus a shortcut to the kind of Messiah he would become. When, when Satan tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread, it was a shortcut to become a bread Messiah. It's easy to get followers when you pass out free food. When Jesus is led up to the high mountain, offered a vantage point of the kingdoms of the world, offered a shortcut, right, to becoming the political Messiah, offered an easy way to uh, win the kingdom and, and the power and the glory that we pray for at the end of the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus is taken up to the, the top of the temple and offered this opportunity to hang glide without a parachute, can you imagine how many followers you get? As John talked about last week with Instagram, can you imagine how many Instagram followers you could get if you hang glide without a parachute from the temple on a crowded day in Jerusalem? And yet, as one commentator puts it, Jesus chose to make a different kind of leap. He chose to make the leap of faith. He chose to refuse the shortcut. He chose to take the long and winding road through the wilderness. You know, as important as it is, as I just said, that we memorize scripture, that we meditate on individual verses of scripture, it's also just as important that we read the Bible for length, that we know the grand sweep of the Bible. We need to be people who know who we are, to know who our forebears are, so to speak, our spiritual ancestors, 
to know where they came from, to know how God brought them through, to know what mistakes that they made, to know God's grace, to know how God works. If not, guess what? We'll get caught up in distortions. If not, guess what? We will get caught up in fads and we'll miss the big picture. You know, I'm old enough to remember when it seemed like so many North American Christians were praying this prayer from an obscure Old Testament figure in 1 Chronicles 4. Uh, his name is not even in my concordance, I checked this morning. Uh, his name is Jabez, J-A-B-E-Z. Uh, and he had a prayer about kind of enlarging my territory and things like that. And it's in the Bible and it's always, uh, you know, God's word is inspired. So these are inspired words, nothing wrong with that prayer. But it seems like there was a season when everybody was praying the prayer of Jabez, and there was another guy whose name starts with J, five letters too, who also gave us a prayer. His name is Jesus, and his prayer is the Lord's Prayer. But for a season, we seem to all be praying the prayer of Jabez more than we were praying the prayer of Jesus. I think, I think one of the reasons why we need to not only read for depth, but read for length is so that we can know that, that, that Jesus is at the center of Scripture. And, and Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, he says, all of Scripture testifies to me. We need to see that big picture. We need to know how God works. You know, my, my dad doesn't like to, to drive on freeways anymore, and at 89, who can blame him? Uh, and so whenever I drive him somewhere, he tends to give me directions that he takes when he's driving, and these directions avoid the freeways, and, and sometimes we'll travel down one residential street, and then we'll do a little U-turn, and, and uh, sometimes I, I ask him, you know, are we going to have to stop and ford a, a creek at some point, Dad, uh, to get to where we're going? And he, he jokingly calls them his shortcuts, and his shortcuts usually take about 15 minutes longer than Google Maps suggests uh, it would take to get there, uh, and I call them uh, my dad's long cuts. And uh, so please don't tell my dad this. Uh, but, but in this circumstance, I wonder if my earthly dad and my heavenly dad have something in common. Because if you ever noticed how often God takes us the long way, but Lord, it would be so much shorter to go this way. Yeah, but that's not the way I want to take you. I think Jesus knows this because Jesus is immersed in Scripture and, 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 you know, Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. And so Jesus knows how the Father works. I think this is really important, friends. Yes, Jesus quotes Bible verses. But Jesus also knows the long and powerful story of how God has led his people. Jesus knows that sometimes God lets us linger in the wilderness Jesus knows that God could have taken the children of Israel on a, just a, a few days' journey to get to the promised land, but they weren't ready. And so often, neither are we, and so we need these long detours. Google Maps says we should be there by now, but God has a different idea, and our immersion in Scripture teaches us that. You know, we so often want the microwave, and God likes the slow cooker, um, you know, I think it's interesting that so many of Jesus' parables are about seeds. Have you ever noticed that? You can't rush seeds. 
I mean, if you plant a seed on Tuesday, you come out on Wednesday, what's the deal? It's been 24 hours. What's going on? But there are no shortcuts with seeds. It's just a lot of planting and a lot of watering and a lot of waiting and a lot of not even knowing what's going on underneath the surface. But it's trusting that one day, surprisingly, something green is going to shoot up to the ground. And then many days later, it's going to bud. And then many days after that, there's going to be fruit. And so we'll experience what the psalmist says in in Psalm 126, that that one day we planted in tears. But one day we're going to come home rejoicing, as the old hymn says, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the harvest that God took an exceptionally long time to bring about. But we trust God. We trust God. His long cuts. Friends, um, as as your pastor, I just am so eager for us to to root ourselves deeply in this book. And that does not just mean, you know, taking an exacto knife and cutting out verses and putting them on the living room wall, right? Uh, As important as it is to memorize and meditate on individual verses, we also want to, you know, discern the ways and means of God. So that we, like Jesus, can say no to a sinful shortcut and say yes to patient faithfulness. Scripture tells us who Jesus is. It tells us who we are. It it tells us how God works. And Scripture ultimately tells us where Jesus is leading us. Because we're not Jesus, right? And sometimes we do get lost and oftentimes we do give in to temptation and temptation leads us down blind alleys and dead ends and sometimes we find ourselves in places that we shouldn't be and never thought we'd be. But what I love about this passage, Luke 4, is that while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, Jesus is not wandering. Jesus is not lost Jesus knows where he is and knows where he is going. I think this is huge. I think there's a bigger story going on in Luke 4 than just one man and one devil in one wilderness. You know, it was about last year this time that we were beginning our study of the Old Testament book of of Exodus. And, And if you were with us, I want you to reflect on some of the things we learned last year. Remember God leads his people Uh, not through the Jordan River, uh, but through the Red Sea. And then where do they go next? They go into a desert. They go into a wilderness. Now, just as Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit, they were led by the presence of God, a, a cloud during the day and fire at night. They were in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days. Now, what happened as soon as the children of Israel got into the wilderness? What do they they immediately start doing? They got hungry and they complained against God. And God fed them manna, but God also taught them to not just rely on manna alone. What did the the children of Israel do when they were in the wilderness? They, they, They built a golden calf and they bowed down to it. Just like the devil was tempting Jesus to bow down to him. But what did Jesus say in verse 8 of chapter 4? Jesus responded, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Our people bowed down to foreign gods. I'm going to bow down to God alone. In In the desert, the children of Israel tried to test God. 
Uh, they, they questioned whether God was faithful. The devil tries to get Jesus to test God by jumping off of the temple. And how does Jesus respond in verse 12? Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you see what is happening, friends? Jesus is leading us through the wilderness of life. And when Israel craves bread, Jesus craves God. When Israel flirts with other gods, Jesus stays true to his father. When Israel tests God, Jesus refuses to test God. And this is who is leading us right now. And maybe your journey has felt long and painful, way longer than 40 days, maybe uh, 40 months, maybe 40 years, maybe you're hungry, maybe you're frustrated, maybe you're distracted. But, but if you're following Jesus, you are not wandering aimlessly. You know, like the children of Israel, we will fail our tests. We will give in to temptation. But Jesus does not. Jesus stays true. Satan withdraws for a more opportune time to come back and come back and come back but Jesus will be victorious and Jesus is the one who leads us to the promised land. So what we need to do is stay rooted in scripture, take off Satan's goggles that will only lead us to hurt ourselves and hurt others and see life through the lens of scripture. Let scripture remind us who we are and what we're called to do and be. I love the story that Dr. Martin Luther King tells about growing up in segregated Atlanta, uh, and that segregation was everywhere, including on the city buses, so that the, the black people had to sit in the back of the bus while white people were seated in the front. And guess what? Even if whites didn't get on the bus, blacks had to sit in the back of the bus, and if it was too crowded and they, and they ended up in the front of the bus, they had to stand instead of sitting down. They had to stand over empty seats. But Dr. King says, and this is so important, he says, but my parents taught me something very early. Somehow, he said, they instilled in me a feeling of somebodiness. You're just as good as any child in Atlanta, Georgia, they would say. And so he says, I would end up having to go back to the back of the bus with my body, but every time I got on the bus, he said, I left my mind up in the front seat. And I said to myself, one day, I'm going to put my body where my mind is. Friends, we need to listen when our Heavenly Father tells us who we are. Because in Christ, we are somebody. We are redeemed. Let's take off Satan's goggles. And let's be reminded of who we are. Jesus kept his mind in heaven. He kept his mind in scripture. He kept his mind grounded in true reality. And because of Jesus and our salvation in him, we are somebody. We are sons and daughters of God. And we are not wandering aimlessly. We are following Jesus. And Jesus will lead us home. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes... Sometimes these Bibles suffer from benign neglect, Lord. Sometimes other paper and screens and information in our lives just seem so pressing. And your word seems uh, hard to understand or not as relevant or not as captivating in the moment. And Lord, so often 
we are led by false visions into terrible collisions. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that sets us free. Thank you that your word points to you and that your cross is at the center of our lives. Immerse us deeply, Lord, in your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.